This is a Federal News Network podcast. A crucial part of the State Department has a new head of crucial function. At a time of high world tension, Erica Halme is the chief of the IT security and governance branch of the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, and she joins me now. Ms. Halme, good to have you on. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, you're fairly new to this job the last couple months, I guess, and let's begin with the Educational and Cultural Affairs branch bureau, I should say, itself. What does it do in state and how does it fit into the whole state picture? Yeah. You know, we have a, a very interesting mission. The whole State Department does does a wonderful job with diplomacy overseas, specifically our, our organization and a few others. But our organization focuses on leading department efforts to expand and strengthen a lot of the relationships that we have from a U.S. entity overseas. So we work with foreign governments, uh, their citizens, and we really help to build national interest, bringing to light opportunities, things professionally, educationally, and culturally, really to exchange individuals, work with them to bring them over here, highlight opportunities within the U.S. And, you know, some of the most amazing things that I've heard are we build those lifetime bonds with individuals overseas so that they become part of State Department They want to come back. They want to work with the State Department as some of our our foreign service. So we've got that unique mission of having that soft touch point overseas with with getting people interested in the federal government, the U.S. in general. And let's talk about the IT security and governance branch. I get IT and security, but governance, tell us what your job is. This is a fairly new branch over here in the Bureau of Education and Cultural Affairs. We're looking at how we can strengthen the bond for IT building into the mission. So we're looking at any kind of governance around how we implement systems, how we bring IT security towards those federal government systems within educational and cultural affairs. It's it's long been known that it's there are mandates, there are acts that tie the systems into a secure posture. But that governance we're looking to enforce and put in place and that program to, to build around it really ties into how we do it, how management is communicated on, how we identify you know, opportunities to continuously improve. We want to build up that opportunity for, for the Bureau so that we can help continuing to support their mission, their intent on bringing innovation, highlighting and, and building that trust with overseas partners. How does it tie into the overall state IT structure? I mean, there is a state CIO. So each, each one of the bureaus within the State Department has their own initiative. It's kind of like... Um, segmenting our our missions. Where the department CIO has ultimate responsibility for the agency, we report on a lot of our our systems, all of our systems. We report on all of our systems, all of our purchases, everything that aligns to IT up through the chains of command into the department CIO. He has that ultimate, or he or she has that ultimate responsibility for department uh, direction in, in IT systems. So we look towards them to provide us with anything from capital to staffing to guidance. They do all of the coordination outside of the department with agencies such as CISA or anyone else where we really need to to gain support. I found it really interesting in the last month, we received a lot of support from the ECISO and department CIO's office in areas where we were hoping to to leverage them and, and kick off conversations with other agencies. So they're really there to strengthen those ties and build around opportunities to partner with other agencies where, you know, being within a bureau, we do work directly with external agencies and their IT shops. But sometimes we don't get as much direct engagement with them because it's not 
our mission is so small compared to the department CIO's clout in their impacts across the board. Sure. We're speaking with Erica Helme. She is chief of the IT security and governance branch of the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs at the State Department. And does the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs have applications of its own that are those mission-related that are separate from the State Department enterprise applications? Do you have your own applications to look over and make sure they're updated and secured and so forth continuously? Absolutely. So every bureau has their own applications that are dedicated towards their mission. Our applications branch chief, he's looking at how we integrate data warehousing, enterprise data for the bureau, and then how that even ties into the, the larger department. Working together, we'll be building out that governance, how we move forward, how we work with the the larger department to keep consistency, communications, and then also building on opportunities for the department and for our specific mission within the Bureau. I'm in good hands as far as the mission goes and and the people that surround me, the leadership, the, the support I receive from my colleagues, and then also from the department to get on board with what that mission is and how we interact to support the mission of the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. Aside from zero trust, which almost everybody says in their sleep now, reflexively, it's become the the word of the day. What are some of the other initiatives, priorities for the IT and security branch and for the IT operation at Educational and Cultural Affairs? Cybersecurity focused, we're looking into... We just received a data call for security ops services for from the department. So I'm hopeful and, and I'm looking forward to the department centralizing security operations and then leaning heavily on them because there's a lot of great guidance coming out from the department in the different areas on cybersecurity. Um, Debbie Pierre-Louise is, is doing a lot of initiatives on um, centralizing communications for anything that comes out for patch management. We had a whole ordeal with the Apache Log4j initiative. We had an entire organization dedicated to remediating over 120 asset systems, uh, servers, I should say, or systems within our environment to meet that critical need that came out of CISA back in December. And it was incredible the way they did it. They, they had everybody that were, had some kind of a tie between all the department bureaus on a call, uh, had a conversation, led the initiative to identify the issue, you know, the challenges, the issues. Um, and, and dropped in templates. They gave out guidance. They, they set standards. They set expectations. And they had a reoccurring meeting where you know everyone would consistently report on the status of uh, remediation of those systems. And, and that's how it should be. I found a lot of value in that. Meeting my colleagues across the department, and then you know exchanging information. They've done they've done such a great job in such a short period of time that the ECISO and UCIO has been on board. Sure. And your prior job, which is where we first encountered you, you were a technology accelerator type person. Tell us what that was mainly for how it's informing what you're doing in the new job. What did you learn as an accelerator of technology? You had your pedal to (laughs) the metal. Of course, of course. So that vision was that came out of this extremely strong individual that I I used to work with. She was my supervisor. indirect supervisor. I would call her a senior advisor. She's been with the State Department and previously with Army Corps. She had this vision of putting in place the technology accelerator program and bringing opportunities to my former bureau, which was the Bureau of Overseas Buildings Operations. Um, Things like IoT, things, you know, that the department is working on, but getting it specifically for construction or specifically for the the business within construction and and facility management or um, anything for embassies overseas. So we were looking at 
you know, bringing that latest innovative technology to to the parameters of the embassies in construction or in maintenance. And, you know, that was a critical piece of, of the organization. It, it led a jumping off point to a lot of areas of opportunity. One of the most, one of the ones that is currently and still being run by the, by Dan Stacula, the CIO, is called the OBO Smart Building Solution. And so they're looking at putting in place opportunities to aggregate the data. And it all seems like it's this is old news, um, but for the federal government, this is this is resounding information where you're, you're pulling back an entire network of smart building services. I mean, you walk through a mall garage. How often do you see, um, you know, those little green lights on the parking spots that say, oh, there's a spot available versus it's red. It's not available. So things like that, figuring out how many cars are sitting in a parking lot and at an embassy and, and pulling it back. You still don't find those in, in many of the buildings in private industry. So they're doing a great job. All right. And uh, final question. So are you an IT person or a state person or a little of both? Um, I'm, I'm both. I, I would say both. I think the mission drives me independently. But IT individually has been my, my core focus for the last oh, 12, 15 years. So I've been a federal employee 10 years. And then before that contracted, gosh, I, it seems like so long ago now. I think I was contracted for five years. So state, definitely. Prior to that, I was at Homeland Security. Loving every bit of, of State Department, though I feel so close with the mission now that I'm part of a, a bureau. So it's been it's been excellent. Erica Halme is chief of the IT security and governance branch of the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs at the State Department. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you, sir. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she 
worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature.